position. Affirmative. Negative. I am the milkman. My milk is delicious. Roger that. Okay, let's go. Welcome to the Best Linux Games Podcast. Go, go, go! The best Linux games, the best games available for the uh, GNU slash Linux operating system via the mechanism and distribution network known as Steam, brought to you by Valve. After 700,000 years, the Steam has come to Linux, and beyond that, it has come to Linux in the form of the egalitarian Linux-like platform, Steam, an open marketplace in which everyone, total meritocracy, everyone, regardless of size, amount of money, regardless of amount of developers, and prospective sales, that's right, ladies and gentlemen, it's Saturday, and that means it's time for one thing. It's time for the podcast where the quality goes in before the name goes on. You're listening to the Best Linux Games Podcast, a companion piece to the uh, Steam group of the same name. Find us on Steam, you know. Uh, join us on Steam and friend me on Steam. My name is Scooky Sprite. I am your host. In case this is your first time here, uh, the ground rules for everything that we do are very simple. We have news, we have the latest titles that we are interested in, of course, features, you know, like kind of in depth looks or reviews, and then we have, of course, everyone's favorite. The deals! Uh, the best games that you can buy for as cheap as possible. If you join us on the group, our recommendations are curated with the sole criteria of... It must run on Linux, and it must be really good. These are recommendations only, of course. Uh, not complete reviews, which generally will follow, um, especially once they get some other mofos on this show. And as always, the content that awaits you ahead may not be appropriate for members of all species, races, genders, classes, creeds, and especially might not be age or work appropriate. So, it begins. Let's get the Linux gaming on, bitches! Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of, uh, actually, the Best Loose Games Podcast, episode number 350, to be exact, being recorded for you on this Friday, the 9th of July, at 1900 hours, I'm gonna make it 7 o'clock, left coast, Pacific coast, coast with the most time, crack engineer, Ivo Molina over there in the booth, holding on the whiskey sign, cheers, Ivo, you're fired, oh, yes, yes, we gotta get the whiskey, There's- that should hold them. Let's drink this up. Gobble, gobble, gobble. Mm. Mm-hmm. Ivor, you are fired. You are fired, Ivor. Molina, you've been fired forever. Forever, you're fired. Ivor, you're fired. That makes it for our sequel, friends. 2021 0709. 1900 hours, 7 p.m. Mm. We have a big show. 
and a good show, actually. Big good show. Shut right up your ass. Right up your ass. That's right, motherfuckers. That's right. Um, so let's get straight to our top stories. First of all, this week we performed a massive hard drive upgrade on our home partition, which existed previously on its own spinning rust 4 terabyte disk. But, due to the uh, demands of you know, all of, I mean, I do a lot of shit. Like, in real life, I do a lot of stuff. And then I play a lot of games. So, 4 terabytes uh, held me for about 6 years. It's just the whole partition. Bam, home. Uh, but I was running out of space to the point where, like, for, like, last 9 months-ish, I've been really only been able to have one or two large style Steam games installed at any given time, which is a massive inconvenience for me because there are lots of games that I really like uh, that I, you know, end up playing for the show and I really like them, but I don't get to play and I get to, you know, I get to feature them on the show, like I get like five hours in or whatever, but then I never get to revisit them because I can't uninstall what I'm currently playing to make room for that game at any given time, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, this was a big upgrade uh, for me. I got uh, the same Seagate uh, 8 terabyte discs that I use in my ZFS array. I got uh, another one. I, I think it was, I think they're 150 bucks. I got, I got mine bunch of weeks ago. It was actually my hot spare. But, like, I mean, I'm really running out of space on this home partition. And there's no option at this point. At that point, you know, blah. So, anyway, um, I fired up ye old Clonezilla, which took nine hours to uh, complete and fail. Rare thing. Clonezilla has failed on me before, but uh, this was... This was, you know, disturbing because I have to move four terabytes from one drive to the other. But because it failed, it did, however, result in me having two disks installed on my system with the same everything. Like the same partition size, the same serial, not the same serial numbers, but the same UUID, the same part UUID. Which was really difficult because then I had to figure out if I wanted to use DD um, or rsync, and I gave DD a try, and I had to use you know smart control or not smart control. Um, what did I use anyway? I had to fucking figure out which drive by serial number, uh, but I you know that was not that difficult. Uh, but then it was a matter of testing versus DD, which usually is the fastest. Usually. But for some reason, I think maybe because of the disc volume and the... Maybe the... the um, I, I really don't know. I really don't know now that I think about it. But I, I let DD run for six hours and it was only getting... It was getting marginally better than bullshit. Uh, transfer rate per, uh, gigabyte per minute. And so, finally, I engineered an R-Sync, uh, just a straight-up R-Sync solution with a background monitoring process that would show me every hour what 
the amount that had been transferred because rsync is super opaque in terms of doing you know 3.6 terabytes of data transfer ultimately uh it took rsync about 22 hours to do it and it's done so then there in in the interim because i did that all while you know running the system mm. and this is useful i think this is a relative topic uh for anyone who is, you know, gaming on Linux, you know, blah, number one, always keep your home partition on a separate partition or on a separate partition on another disk. That's even better. So you can do this sort of thing because eventually, especially if you produce a podcast, it's an hour long every goddamn week. Eventually, your raw audio will start to eat into your free drive space and your gaming will be hindered. Uh, and you'll need to buy a new drive. And you'll need to have an extra SATA slot to slot that new drive in, which was not a problem. But then figuring out which drive was which after the drives have been cloned was a big... That took about five hours. Because you, because all of these drives, the, the new drive, which now looks the same as the old Western Digital drive, is also the same model of drive as my four drives at FS Array, so I had to do it by serial number, which is very difficult to do, um, and you have to be really sure that you don't knock out one of your drives on your ZFS Array, otherwise I'd have to resilver it, and that would suck. So anyway, um, our sync took about 22 hours to do, to move 3.6 terabytes, and then I made sure that it moved all the system files over, then I just edited the F-stab, once I knew Oh yeah, th- th- that was my point. So I had these two drives that were clones of each other. Mm. Including the UUID and part, U- part UUID. So in F-stab, I was fucked. Once I figured out which drive, once I verified, which I knew which one it was, but once I verified for a fucking actual fact, which one was the clone and which one was not the clone of the home by using serial numbers I got to the, you know, the uh, Linux, you know, dev SD, SDG is what it turned out to be um then I had to research because I was like, I need, a U- I need a new UUID for this and I remembered back in the day doing something similar because the UUID is what you plug into FSTAB these days um, but ultimately it turned out that, like, I researched, I'm like, how do I change the UID? It took about, like, two hours, you know, whatever, figuring it out. Um, you can do it by G-parted. It has a special little option. Uh, assign a new UID. So I assigned a new UID, and then I, uh, edited the F-stab. Um, I didn't edit the F-stab just then. I assigned the new UID, rebooted, and then I've been computing at a basically normal but slightly slower rate for the entirety of the week as I went through um, a test of the file transfer. Because, you know, like, the difference between 8 hours versus 8 hours that fail again, that would be 16 hours, and just fucking doing it with rsync, which I know works for a fact because I've done it before. Um, 
plus another six hours of testing DD because you want DD to ramp up. You want to see what the actual because it, it really matters when you're transferring data from spinning rust disk to spinning rust disk, especially when one is of a much higher capacity than the other. Chances are that you know you're you're gonna get you need to see what the the data transfer rate is gonna be like because then you could have you know eight hours plus six hours, which is, you know, like 14 hours, which is not bad to waste on two failures, but you want to give those six hours to DD to see if DD is going to achieve a block-by-block better transfer rate than rsync, and then you have to monitor rsync because the you have to control the amount of time it's going to take to accomplish this task. And so it's better to spend in, you know, to my math, better to spend 14 hours more or less um, plus like, you know, maybe another three hours like researching how to fix, you know, Clonezilla fuck up and then just using rsync if rsync turns out to be faster and monitoring it because the alternative is you can run a solution for forever that's not going to work, I mean literally it will never finish, or you could run one that costs you 72 hours which is three days. It's like a full work week of that's the bulk of a work week of fucking computing. And I did not have that luxury this week. So anyway, it all worked out okay. It's all done at 22 hours. And now, yesterday, I started installing all of the games that I want to have installed at all times. Because I went from 4 terabytes to 8 terabytes. 3.6 terabytes actually used from the old drive. And then, uh, the new drive geometry is like seven, seven and a quarter. So I still have. I, I set up, um, and then I went to bed. I set up in Steam, download all of these games, which happened to be like one point three terabytes, and it took about ten hours to for it to finish. But I was asleep, so I woke up and I have all the games now, and it's great. And that's how you do it, kids. And then you edit the F stab. Once, then you rsync again. You run the exact same rsync as you did before. Then you run a pseudo rsync with um, exclude. Uh, what the? F- hang on, it's not. In- it's the opposite. Yeah, it's exclude. What is it? And you want with info progress and all the good stuff. But where is? Huh, I'm scrolling through my command history here. Weird. I can't find it. Oh, it might might have been because I did it as the super user? Let's see. Ivor, you're fired! But after you get, like, it was, it was 3 million files and over 4 billion Four trillion bytes, I want to say, is how much shit got moved. What the fuck is that? Anyway, then you want to run it one time after you're done with, you know, just running it as a normal user. Because we're, we're, we're porting our home directory to a new hard drive. There, there'll be stuff in there that is privileged, some stuff. It should not be the bulk or at all. But after it's all done, then you want to rsync it again. 
then you want to rsync it as sudo with uh, exclude. I can't remember the exact parameter, but it's the, the exclude one, where if on the destination the file already exists, do not even try to incrementally back it up. Just ignore it and add it to the tally of completed shit. That way you get to all the stuff that is privileged, and you're of course running rsync with the A flag, so which is like AZV. Um, archive preserve permissions, modification times, etc, etc, etc. But then you want to add the exclude flag for the sudo because then it'll only transfer over anything that's not already there, and that will be those privileged files, such as your key ring, other stuff that you need. Then you edit the stab and you swap out the UUID for your old home directory to the new drive, then you reboot and it should work like a dream, uh, which it did in my case. Um, but it was really difficult when I had the same UUID on both hard drives and both everything, all of the information looked identical. Clonezilla did a good job and failed. And that was troublesome. But anyway, so, also in our top stories, before we get to our feature this week, which is our long-anticipated Days Gone review, which is going to be pretty short, um, because there's not a lot I can talk about in terms of that game that I don't feel are spoilers, but we'll get there. To yesterday, um, my Amazon Luna game controller arrived, which I was joking with friends about, uh, saying, I'm sending them screenshots saying, the most revolutionary thing to come to game controllers ever in the history of the universe. It looks exactly like a Stadia slash Xbox One controller, but with one extra button that actually lets you talk to an Amazon Echo directly through the controller. Now, today I set up Amazon Luna on my iPad, and here are a couple of thoughts that like led me to an epiphany. Amazon Luna is different from other streaming game services like Google Stadia, in that it doesn't require pairing with a screen. The way it does this is it actually uses whatever network it's active on and it uses that network, you know, your Wi-Fi network uses that as the intermediary. So when, after you set up your controller with your phone, and you can even use your phone as a screen, I used my iPad as a screen today. Um, all you have to do is on anything that is either a smart TV or a computer or a tablet or a phone, you just open up the Luna app. You go to like Google, Amazon Luna, and there's like a button that says like play Luna after you set up a subscription. And that we'll talk about that next. And the controller doesn't need to pair with the screen. The screen, quote-unquote, detects the controller. And it also has some of the best Bluetooth setup ever. So if, like, if you're, like, on an iPad or whatever, one of the problems with Stadia is its Bluetooth is really wacky, and they didn't really bother to think about, well, what if we wanted to run on an iPad? More whiskey. 
So out the box, I had my uh, Luna paired up with my Bluetooth, no problem, on my iPad. iPad Pro EXT4, whatever the fuck this is, I don't remember. Um, and I was playing games. Now, there are some drawbacks, but there's some unique features to Luna that I had not considered. One of the cool things about Luna is you can go from your phone screen, let's say you open up um, a Luna screen on your iPad, that screen will be the same as the one that was on your phone. Because it's all running off your local Wi-Fi network. And the connection for the controller to the Bluetooth, to your device is done by Bluetooth. Evidently with Fire TV, it's even easier. It's like native. Um that's a big difference from the endless world of hurt that you enter into with Stadia which sometimes detects my controller on my iPad and sometimes it doesn't. I don't do a lot of gaming on my iPad but that's why I have my Linux machine but um blah. Now the other major difference between Amazon Luna and Stadia, and by the way the Luna controller it's very nice. It's exactly like any other controller you've ever had. The build quality is a little better than most um high-end third-party controllers, high-end. It's not as good as an Xbox 360 controller. It doesn't feel as good. But it's very responsive. Um, It's great. Right now, all of this is still in early access. But they have rolled out their two initial subscription uh, subscription models which is very different from the path that Stadia took. Stadia was like, well, give us money and we'll give us money per month and we'll give you a bunch of free games per month. But we won't add that many new games that you could actually buy from a store. The Amazon Luna model is kind of the opposite. It seems like what they're going for, at least in early access right now, is they have two different subscriptions that you can get one is $6 a month and that's for the Luna just game package which as of now has way more games than Stadia ever had like for the first like three months since they launched has a bunch of really good interesting offers that cover all bases like if you have kids this looks like it's got stuff for kids it's got stuff for you as an adult it's got like 60 games, something like that. It's, it's a lot of games. Um, it also has uh, recent favorites, cult favorites of mine in particular, and this show, like Bloodstained Ritual of the Night, Castlevania Collection, Contra Collection. It also has modern AAA titles. It also has, you know, blah, 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 blah. All of that is free if you pay $6 a month. That seems, so I'm calling that the flat rate free everything pricing model. There is no way to buy a game for Amazon Luna. The other model that they offer is Ubisoft Unlimited. You can get both, of course, but I opted out of Ubisoft Unlimited because it's $17 and I have almost all of the Ubisoft games that run on Linux, at least. And I'm not that interested in other Ubisoft games at paying 
$16 a month, $17 a month in perpetuity. So right now I'm paying $6 a month for 60 games. Now imagine if after they launch, they aggressively push on this, their Luna just base tier model. The controller itself, which you don't really have to have Um, thank you, Master Splinter. Yeah, I knew that it was fully playable. You don't listen to the show. Don't give me news. Don't talk to the guy who does the fucking news and don't tell me the news. Anyway, where was I? Um, imagine if after they launch, imagine if after they launch that Amazon aggressively adds titles to this Luna tier and I'm and they already have AAA t- like there's Assassin's Creed and shit in there there's all sorts of shit like really good games like there's that one uh, anyway, doesn't matter I won't go, th- won't go through it, setup is super easy but imagine if they push you know 45 games a month 45 to 60 so let's say 30 on the low end 60 on the high end per month in 3 months they will have and say 45 on average per month. That would be cool. And I don't know when they're gonna like officially launch. Like I um I signed up for early access and blah. So that's six that's fifty-five dollars for a controller that the build quality is very good. It feels like it's gonna last. We'll see if it does. Requires two triple A bat two double A batteries that are non-rechargeable, but whatever. Um three months in, they'll have like 160 games for $6 a month. And so then I started thinking, well, but Google has all the money in the world and they're in it to win it. And then I started thinking, wait a minute, no. Amazon is more readily positioned for this to be in their wheelhouse. Google runs 21 data centers. Amazon runs over three times as many in the U.S. alone. Amazon has been selling AWS and CPU cycles. They were the guys who made that fashionable. This is their market. So it's their market to take. If they want to win this, Amazon will win this. So what I'd be looking for is for Stadia to fold completely either by the end of this year or this time next year or for Amazon to fold by this time next year because these two juggernauts are heading inexorably towards a showdown and they are the juggernauts fucking Xbox is service it's still in beta it and what I've heard is it's not that great. It does give you a huge selection of games, but they're laggy. This, no lag. Stadia, no lag. Um, Amazon's Luna, though, right now is currently restricted at max to 1080p. But when you're playing on a smaller screen, 1080p looks amazing. They are rolling out 4K for those of us who want to play it, like myself, on a big screen TV. But uh, that's all in the future. Lots of stuff to think about. Who's going to win that? Who wants it more? 
And who's got the better model? Who will attract more uh, developers and publishers? Google, who has more money than God, but Amazon, who's got their finger on these relationships, evidently, with a broad variety of publishers, especially Ubisoft, evidently. What I would be looking for is who EA signs with. Because I think that they're just waiting to launch their own fucking streaming thing or whatever, and that's going to be a disaster. Because they don't have the infrastructure. Amazon, AWS, they've been doing this for fuck. Nekomata was was spun up on AWS. Nekomata. Christ's sake. Mm. So these guys, this has been their wheelhouse for forever. Whereas, Am- whereas Google has... I, I can't believe I was so blind to not think of this. But anyway, it runs it runs great. Um, something to think about. Something to think about. Especially as they get closer and closer to rolling it out. For reals. I wore based them with the special review bumper. Let's get to it. Guy in under an hour. In accordance with the laws and regulations regarding the internet within your local jurisdiction, Best Linux Games Podcast now presents you with a dose of clap. Just kidding, motherfuckers. It's review time. So, our review this week is for the phenomenal game known as Days Gone. Now, there's not a lot I can tell you about Days Gone that doesn't reveal or change or alter the end player user experience. I'm going to do my best. And we're going to do it concisely and etc. But Days Gone earns Best Linux Games highest possible award, the worthful price, any price, all price, any day, any hour, any week, any month, any year, any decade award for excellence. It is a phenomenal game. It's also a major technical achievement, in my humble opinion, because it's the first truly mature game to bring together real complex storytelling elements and techniques into the medium and does it with bone-crushing effectiveness. That's the narrative side of Days Gone. If you've never heard of Days Gone, let me give you the premise. Next week, oh, God forbid, a horrible fucking pandemic that turns people into raving, flesh-eating zombies who are superhuman in speed, strength, and can take a lot of damage begins spreading across the country. Especially the Pacific Northwest where the game is set. You are an enforcer for a biker gang. When this hits, you're in Farewell, Oregon, where the the game is all set in Oregon, the Pacific Northwest, and uses real locations and the 
Geography is gorgeous. It's breathtaking. The weather, the graphics are amazing. But anyway, here's the start of the game. You and your best friend, Boozer, who's a lieutenant in the biker gang, think like somewhere between Hell's Angels and like Sons of Anarchy, I guess. Put Sons of Anarchy, make it mate with Mad Max, make it a love story, tragic love story, post-apocalyptic at the turn. See, my whole thing about post-apocalyptic books, movies, video games, everything, but especially books and movies, this is the first video game that gets it right. My post-apocalyptic vision for a video game is no one knows what the fuck happened. Any of the survivors would not know what the fuck happened. Especially if it's, you know, like a nuclear EMT attack. Or EMP. You know, high altitude deploying. Bam, you can knock out the entire West Coast, East Coast, whatever. No one knows what the fuck happened. There's no communications there. Fries all those circuits. Same is true for uh, massive uh, cyber attack against SCADA systems. Bam, all those turbines... Turbines explode. Takes three months to get one brand new with communications right now. Under ideal circumstances, takes three months. They have to, they're made to order. So you blow those turbines by hacking them, you shut down the entire country. Everyone is exactly two weeks away from starving. Most people are exactly four days away from starving. So you can tear a country apart just by that. Now you introduce these bloodlust mindless, it's like it turns humans into insects is what the pandemic seems to do. So they hunt in packs and the packs hunt in hordes and they'll eat each other if they can't eat you, but they want to eat you. So you and Boozer and your woman, Sarah, are in Farewell, Oregon when the shit goes down. Small town. You know, things are kind of shy and sleepy here in Grover's Corners. Sarah gets mortally injured in your flight out of farewell. This is the opening sequence of the game. You have no control over this. It's just a cutscene. It's it's how the game starts. The National Emergency Response Organization has a helicopter on a nearby building. Sarah has not been injured by the freaker. She's been stabbed by a little kid. And it nicked her kidney and she's gonna die. You and Boozer get her to this helicopter on a nearby rooftop 
and are told by a silver a guy in a silver hazmat suit. after you draw down on him <laughs> that there's only room for two on the helicopter. So you put her on the helicopter and you stay with Boozer. And you give her your ring. And they take off and it fades to black and it says two years later. And it's you and Boozer who have somehow survived for two years through this zombie apocalypse in the Pacific Northwest doing some camp stuff. You don't even understand what's happening. And that's the tutorial portion of the game is like where you don't understand what's happening. I'm not going to explain the camps or any of that shit in this review because it's just too much story material. But here's the great genius of this fucking game and why I think it is an underplayed, underrated, undervalued, absolute masterpiece. And it kills me that there were plans for a sequel, but they're not going to do it. The game itself is, is fine, I think. Our, if I had to give it a score on a scale of 1 to 10... It would be an 8.4 and it could have been a, a strong 8.4. It's a strong 8.4. Metal Gear Solid 5 is only a 9 for me. This game could have been a 9 with a little bit of changes in the third third portion the, 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 the third part of the game. The the final third of the game. There we go. That's a better way of saying it. I kept wanting to say period. Anyway. You are a badass post-apocalyptic biker with a buddy named Boozer who, as you play the game, you discover in both scripted and non-scripted sequences just how fucked up you are. From having killed so... From having seen such shit for two fucking years. Secretly hoping that Sarah is still alive. And, uh... You guys survive. And you find out in a very long game. It's a very big, long sandbox game. Uh, just what the limits are of the actual medium of the video game to really persuade and convince and um, be effective at telling a story as good as any movie better than any movie better than any novel because, and I'm going to tell you some later game stuff here, but it's I'm not I'm not going to tell you any specifics. The the thing about this game is that it, it does what most writing fiction classes always preach. It 
it shows you instead of telling you. So a lot of the information that the player gets about what the fuck is going on, what the fuck has happened at any given moment is just presented to the player. Another huge portion of information is presented to the player because there's not a lot of input from the outside world. I mean, the outside world has been overrun by freakers. Everyone is dead. The world has ended. And these freakers move about in hordes now. And there are these encampments that are vestiges of civilization, but each one has a different approach to it. It reminds me very much of Fallout 2. And if the developers had gone just a little bit further with this concept, they could have made a game that's better than Fallout 2, and Fallout 2 is still my favorite pick for the best game ever made of all time. But the other half of the information that you get as the player, not as the character, but as the player is seeing and listening to how your character, Deacon St. John, reacts to information that's given to him. That's like the middle portion of the game. Then there's a massive conflict. I'm not going to tell you anything about the story or anything. Um, But I will tell you about the game mechanics. You are basically a Harley rider. You're like a Hells Angels kind of guy. You're a one percenter. And that means you ride these giant fucking big cruiser bikes that are designed to be able to spin out, to drift. At the start of the game, your bike needs a lot of work. Each camp has different bike parts. They also have different weapons. Each camp keeps their own script, their own credits, their own form of economy. All camps offer bounties on freaks. You get these bounties by killing freaks, getting close to the corpse, and you automatically, magically and invisibly collect an ear from them. You turn those ears in for camp credits. You can also do missions for the camp leaders at each camp if they have missions available. There are so many things that you can do in Days Gone. You can clear a freaker nest to make fast travel easy between camps and locations. You can hunt down National Emergency Response Organization checkpoints, National Emergency Response Organization uh, beacons. Uh, You can hunt down ambush camps. You can hunt down raiders. You can hunt down people who take you and kidnap you after luring you off the trails and ensnaring you and stealing all your shit. Now, how does the combat work in this game? Well, predominantly for most of the game, at least your first time through, it's going to be stealth-based combat. 
And that means one-on-one. You have two options for stealth. You have basic melee attacks, which involve your melee weapon, which is a crafted weapon, which you have to keep in repair. You have to repair it. It it has a, a limited durability. And then you have your boot knife, which is like a, you know, serrated, standard flick knife that's about six inches long. It's a deadly fucking weapon. And, uh, that's what <clears throat> that's what you'll be using for stealth kills. The stealth system in the game is very simple, but very important and very good, generally speaking. The thing is, you don't want to alert the hordes with shooting a firearm. Freakers love sound, and freakers can smell blood a mile away. So, not a mile away, like, you know, like a hundred yards away. They can smell your blood. If you're bleeding. And they're all different types of freaks. Guy freaks, girl freaks. And you learn all about the freakers and stuff. You learn more and more about them. But it's been two years and Deacon is going insane. Deacon is a broken man. <laughs> and that's who you play as. So the the combat mechanics, especially for stealth, and you've got to use stealth. Eventually you'll get weapons and then you'll buy suppressors. These are temporary suppressors made out of air filters and, and stuff from cars that only last, you know, maybe a clip and a half. But if you're really good and you're really and ammo doesn't last that long either early on in the game. Eventually by the third portion of the game you should be able to have enough ammo for any weapon that you want and you should have all the weapons that you want. But then there's still more weapons that you can unlock and those are the best weapons but I won't tell you, I won't even tell you what they are. I won't even tell you what those weapons are. So the number of stealth kill animations is impressive as you negotiate all of these different requirements. The number of collectibles is also impressive. Historical monument markers, eventually um, fucking historical souvenirs, character souvenirs. But it's really the story of the game and the awesome, it's like Metal Gear Solid 5 in the inverse instead of trying not to kill anybody you have to kill everybody, especially if they're humans because humans are the worst fucking thing in this game humans are scum you have to rescue survivors randomly, programmatically generated survivors, a la Spider-Man. The game combines like 17 different aspects from of the best aspects from 17 of the best different games all into this one game and then dra- uses this story to compel you through it. And it is so much fun. Because when you fuck up, you fuck up catastrophically like you know there might be like two freakers like on the road and these are all just random fucking randomly spawn you know blah but you might be near a horde and not know it and so let's say you hop off your bike or shoot them from your bike um and aggro the horde 
when I say a horde, I don't mean like 50 scary zombie guys coming at you. I don't mean 100 scary zombie guys coming at you. I don't mean 200. I mean 500 fucking zombies. That They're not zombies. They're just sick people. <laughs> they're never going to be sick people again, though. Because... <laughs> There's so many of them. They will overwhelm a landscape. They will pour through, over, and around like ants, like monstrous fucking ants, and they can run faster than you. Any structure between you and them, they will fucking, they will find a way through it. Oh, boy. And they will rip you apart in one second. If you get swallowed by a horde, you have zero seconds left to live. It's That's it. So, after 120 hours, just last night, I saw, for the first time, Deacon do a new stealth kill animation that I had never seen before. He walked up behind the sentry. This was at a marauder camp. Well, I walked I walked him up behind the sentry and and I pressed the stealth kill. And I was a little bit offset to the left of the sentry. The sentry is staring out and, you know, kind of bored, shifting his weight from foot to foot, staring out into the forest at night. And this is in the middle of a marauder camp. And I came up behind it, but I was a little bit offset to the left. And Deacon just put his hand on this guy's shoulder. The way that, like, um, if you were looking at a sunset, if you were camping and looking at a sunset, and your friend came up behind you and just, you know, put his arm around your shoulder, like, yeah, it's pretty pretty, isn't it? But instead of putting his arm around this guy... He, gr- he grabs not hard, like he waited until like his hand is right on his shoulder. And then he closes the grip, and just when the guy is going to look over and say, "Yeah, it is a pretty sunset," or whatever the equivalent, or what the fuck, bam! Deacon's boot knife goes right into his ear, through his brain, and into his other ear. <laughs> These animations are fantastic and horrifying. And that pretty much characterizes the entirety of the game. I would say that uh, the game could could deserve a 9 on a scale of 1 to 10 were it not for some plot stuff that happens in the last third of the game that I, yeah, I thought was kind of cheap and manipulative in comparison to the first 80 hours of gameplay and story-driven gameplay and darkness and darkness and darkness and super quality. That's, I mean, it might be the most inarticulate review I've ever given. Oh, and the environments are amazingly gorgeous. We're talking rural small towns in the Pacific Northwest Oregon mainly, well, Oregon exclusively. Um, freeway small towns. The whole game takes place in like maybe 24 
somewhere between 12 to 24 square kilometers. That sounds small. It's huge because it's all mountains and weird backwoods paths and trails and you can go off-roading and as your bike gets better, as your weapons get better, as your skills improve, as you unlock crafting recipes, as you find out what happened to the National Emergency Response Organization, and as you uncover the truth of the horrible pandemic that has ruined your fucking life and has taken everything from you, and has taken the humanity out of all of these other people, um... And as you murder and murder and murder and murder and murder, you kill a lot of motherfuckers in this game. You kill a lot of motherfuckers and you're glad. (laughs) Eventually, you get to the point where you are capable of wielding such profound invincible carnage that you're able to take down hordes. And that's kind of post-game stuff, but it's not a surprise. Um, so I'm not saying that's a spoiler. By the time you can take down hordes, it opens up another game. That was another 30 hours of game for me. So it's a very long game, and it's 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 a magnificent achievement. The shape masking, the dialogue, the way they structure what you know about the story, and the way that the missions are structured. It's a heartbreaking... It's like Mad Max, if Mad Max, the video game, had been more verbose. It earns our highest honors. It is one of the best games. It's one of the most memorable games I've ever played. Uh, It's one of the best games that I've played in the last 10 years. And... uh, Lots of people didn't like it. Lots of critics didn't like it, too. Which, critics are like people, too, except normally the people play the games. Critics these days don't. I did. Take it from me. You like survival, craft them up, with great interface, stealth mechanics, on a motorcycle... In post-apocalyptic Pacific Northwest, which I'm prejudiced towards because I would love to live out there, um, with all sorts of sophisticated play mechanics, uh, like, you know, weather and time of day, uh, they matter. They matter. And freakers and light strategy, heavy tactics, full-blown balls-out fucking murder strong stealth element that's simple to pick up, difficult to master, and unpredictable um, in any given situation because everything is done programmatically. Days Gone. It's one of the best looking games. I I literally spent the last four days wrestling with myself, which is the better looking game. Red Dead Redemption 2 or Days Gone. I kind of I kind of got to give it to Days Gone because it's real landscapes and you should see some of the one-to-one photos like of Wizard Island and stuff. And the story is just magnificent and it keeps you interested, beyond interested. It, it keeps you... <sighs> keeps you losing. Losing your mind. 
How long can you hold it together here at the far limits of the world? It reminds me of Tithonus. <laughs> After many a summer dies the swan. So, do not listen to other motherfuckers. If you've listened to me about other games that you thought you might not like, especially pick this up, but literally the the critics just did not play this game and they did not see this level of sophistication I think that I see in the game I might be out of my mind but also it works as a great fucking murderous action game as well so yeah check it out and I will be back next week I will be back next week with uh, a review a glorious review a first time caliber review for this show completely checks off one of the last remaining boxes on our must run on Linux for it to be awesome games we'll be reviewing PGA Tour 2K21 cheers thanks for listening and check out Days Gone and by the way this is Radio Free Oregon don't believe the uh, don't believe the lies A good idea. Four or five times. Hi there. There is delight in doing things right. Four or five times. It is I, E.B. Farnham. Maybe I'll cry. I'll get you a drink. And if I die, I'm gonna try four or five times. Do you like to play? We like to play. I like you. We like to see. It only runs on Linux. We like to go. Yaddy yaddy yo. Four or five times. We're gonna have such fun. Bebop one. You're becoming hysterical. Bebop two. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Bebop three. Yaddy yaddy. Four or five times. Matt Damon. Burn everything incriminating, including this building. Burn all the White House pets, and then yourselves. Burn yourselves first. The best Linux games podcast is brought to you by Blue Wizard is about to die. Now available for the first time as an ebook on Amazon.com. To subscribe to the podcast using a Linux-based podcatcher like Podracer, or to see our YouTube gameplay videos, please visit www.bestlinuxgames.com. Also, join our Steam community group, Best Linux Games, Friends Cookie Sprite, and follow him on Twitter at VegasWriter. BLGP is also brought to you by the Radio Control Room Project. For details, please visit www.rcrproject.com or rfihc.com. Zig thanks you. For great justice.